introduction, Ben. So um, my name is Nancy Martin. I am a psychiatrist at Presbyterian. Um, I did my training at Emory University and had uh, the fortune of working with one of the country's experts um, in the interface of autism spectrum disorder and psychiatry. His name's Joe Cubells, and he runs the Emory Autism Center. Um, it's, it's very, it's one of a kind. It's a clinic um, and a school uh, directed towards the integration of children who are on the spectrum um, with typical children, um, but then also provides um, psychiatric and medical care to adults uh, who are on the spectrum. And so anybody in the room um, who either has a loved one or a family member or knows somebody with autism spectrum disorder, they know that there um, are a variety of special needs that these patients might have. And unfortunately, as they become adults, those services are harder and harder to access. Um, unfortunately, our state is one of those states. Um, so it was really great training. It was actually almost the field that I went into. I, I spent all of my fourth year in this clinic. Um, and so although I'm not an expert, I, I really did have the opportunity to work with some, some, you know, some of the country's experts. And so I'm hoping to bring some of that um, education and some of what I learned that year to you today. So um, we are going to be talking about autism spectrum disorder and how law enforcement professionals uh, might think about interacting with people who are on the spectrum a little bit more. So I do not have any disclosures. And today's outline, the learning objectives for today, is that we're going to define what autism spectrum disorder is. Um, Going from DSM-4 to DSM-5 in the field of psychiatry, um, there's some old nomenclature that kind of persists in society, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. We're gonna discuss the characteristics and needs of people who um, are living with autism spectrum disorder, and then reviewing some specific strategies for you as law enforcement professionals for interacting with persons with autism spectrum disorder. So, you know, I, I pose to the network and to people in the room, why, why do you all think this is important? Why is this an important topic for us to go over? Ben Melendrez with APD. Um, so for typical mental illness, we've had CIT programs for 30 years now, since 88, and I think kind of the new thing that's, um, that officers need to know about is the developmental disability realm. It seems to be that there's more and more of a need um, for how to interact with that, how to interview them in a police setting, and um, just being aware of what, what police and that population of folks can do better uh, to interact with one, each other, one, one another, because there are interactions, and typically police departments even now don't have a lot of training on how, yeah. how to better interact with that's that. A, that's a great point, Ben. Thank you. Lawrence Savage with APD. Um, to piggyback on what Ben is saying, we don't have the training, but but we haven't had the training traditionally. And I think now that it's being diagnosed more and um, it's being treated so that there, um, we have more chance of interacting with people living with autism spectrum disorder, whether it be at their home or um, working or at a group home. So it's really good to get that training so that when we do encounter them, we can end it in a positive note. Absolutely. So thanks for that point, Lawrence. And we'll definitely delve into um, increasing numbers of people who are being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but also the nuances of what makes these people, um, this group of people, um, you know, um, 
different in terms of how we interact, uh, both as healthcare professionals. I can tell you there's not a lot of training for healthcare professionals either. It's interesting to, to watch some of my colleagues in the ER and how they might choose to work with a person living on the spectrum <clears throat> and just not knowing a whole lot. Uh, we have a comment from the network uh, from a sergeant who works in Addison, which is on the suburb of Chicago. He says, I have two sons with autism. We as law enforcement have to do better during those interactions. There has been a ton of misunderstanding involving those on the spectrum. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, so we're going to talk about that. So um, all of those points, you know, are, are, are very well taken. And I think also maintaining officer and community safety, that there are a lot of misperceptions about what people who are on the spectrum, how they interact with others, and what some of their comorbid psychiatric or medical issues might be. Um, certainly we want, to, we want to avoid litigation that the, as a developmental disability. Um, we want to be striving towards meeting the person where they are. Um, and then, of course, making your job easier, empowering you with tools um, for interacting with persons on the spectrum. So, good. So, let's talk about what autism spectrum disorder is. I alluded to um, some changes in the DSM 4 to 5. Um, for those who don't know, the DSM is the um, diagnostic manual that we use in psychiatry to categorize. Illnesses, and that includes, you know, neurodevelopmental disorders as well. Um, autism spectrum disorder um, became more of an umbrella term to encompass things like Asperger's. Uh, Asperger's uh, um, used to be something that we termed for people who are higher level or higher functioning on the spectrum. So um, that kind of became encompassed by autism spectrum disorder. We don't utilize we don't utilize Asperger's anymore, but you'll still hear people talk about that. And when they do, they're meaning somebody who, you know, again, is um, functioning a little bit higher on the spectrum. Um, but it's a, it's a general term for a group of complex disorders of brain development. What we see is impairments in social interaction, verbal and nonverbal communication, and some repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. Okay. Um, so I want to emphasize the spectrum component. When we talk about the spectrum, like most things in the world, everything occurs on a spectrum. And there is this um, um, a famous advocate and person living with autism um, named Dr. Stephen Shore. And, and his quote is, when you've met an individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. Okay, so there really isn't, um, there's, of course, these patterns that we look for in neurodevelopmental um, realms, but there there isn't um, a restricted set of characteristics or facial features or anything about a person um, that goes along with ASD. Now there's some genetic abnormalities that can <clears throat> predispose a person to autism spectrum disorder, but one of the things that has become a pet peeve of mine is when I hear other medical professionals or residents say, oh, they look like they're on the spectrum. Well, that, that there is no look that's on the spectrum. So it's, it's really, a, there's nuances to this, and there isn't, again, to, to repeat Dr. Shore's quote, when you've met one person, you've met one person. And so it really emphasizes this great diversity, right, the spectrum aspect. We do know that there's complex behavioral and neurologic and genetic features along with it, and we tend to see people living with executive functioning deficits or perhaps deficits in their ability to independently function. They might need extra assistance. It can be associated with intellectual or language impairment. Um, again, it can be associated with known medical or genetic abnormalities. Um, some changes in motor coordination, maybe behavior and attention and other physical issues. 
So it's, it's really, you know, a very complex, diverse set of symptoms that can go along with autism spectrum. What causes autism? What do we know? Well, obviously we're, you know, um, scientists are still deep into this issue about what does and what does not cause autism, but we think it's a combination of genetic and environmental influences. Okay. Um, so it seems to be both and it increases risk, but I want to emphasize that risk is not the same as cause. And so this is really difficult in a lot of research is, you know, certain things that could predispose somebody just like we do in other areas of medicine or psychiatry, somebody can be more predisposed towards developing um, a syndrome or a disorder, uh, but they might not express that in their life, right? So we do know that in terms of genetic risk factors, that autism tends to run in families. Uh, and if a parent you know, carries one or more of the genes associated with autism, they can get passed on to a child, even if that parent doesn't have autism. And then sometimes these genetic changes, they arise um, spontaneously, right? It can happen with an early embryo or a sperm or egg, um, and it you know, can, can happen uh, newly, right? Not in, within the family. Um, so I, I do want to emphasize the majority of genes that have been associated don't cause uh, autism, but they can increase the risk for somebody. Uh, and then we think about environmental environmental causes, right? What we do know is that advanced paternal age, both mother and father, uh, you're at increased risk of having a child on the spectrum. Um, pregnancy or birth complications, and that means maybe extreme prematurity, so a baby who's born before 26 weeks of gestation, um, low birth weight, or multiple pregnancies, so twin, triplet um, pregnancies. And, and certainly I think in our society, uh, we've had some changes in terms of when we decide to start families and maybe um, utilization of uh, you know, um, fertility assistance in that, and that, that makes multiple births more common. So that is an increased risk for autism spectrum. And then there seems to be this interesting association between pregnancies spaced less than one year apart. Um, so again, I, I increased risk does not cause does not equal causation. And so a lot of the research is, is based on these genetic environmental risks. What doesn't cause autism? If you all know where I'm going with this. Vaccines. Yeah. So unfortunately, and, and really shamefully, in a period of medicine that depends on um, the scientific process and how we publish, uh, there was a, a person who published erroneous and fabricated data that has led to this, you know, really offshoot and cultish, like, in my opinion, uh, group of people who are anti-anti-vax, um, the anti-vax movement. Um, and despite, you know, years and years of that evidence, and certainly that evidence um, being refuted, uh, there's still, you know, a lot of people who believe that. So each family has a unique experience with the autism diagnosis. Um, and unfortunately for some, it corresponds with the age range of when people have vaccines. Um, and so, you, you know, you'll meet a lot of anti-vax families who say, my child was normal until they got this vaccination. Um, and I think it's really unfortunate in terms of timing, but we have done extensive research over the past two decades, and there's really there's not a single link. Um, 
you know, that vaccines do not cause autism. So if you can take anything away from this, um, I'd be happy to talk offline with anybody who would want to talk about this more directly. And the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually compiled all of this really good research on their website. Um, it's a, there's a comprehensive list and we can send that out later, uh, the link to that. Unfortunately, I think um, there are a lot of celebrities who fall into that realm and they use their position of um, you know, social media power or their influence in, in groups to really propagate that belief. And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, so let's talk a little bit about epidemiology. Um, as Lawrence alluded to, there certainly seems to be increasing rates and this goes along with the data. So when I gave this lecture two years ago, these numbers were different. It was one in 67. And uh, following a 2018 study done by the CDC, uh, it's now one in 57 children. We do know it's more likely in boys. It's one in 37 boys, uh, one in 151 girls. Um, there's so boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than girls. And most children are still being diagnosed after the age of four, though we can reliably diagnose it at age two. Um, affects all ethnic and socioeconomic groups, doesn't spare any of that. What we do know is about 31% of children with autism spectrum disorder have an intellectual disability, um, usually low IQ or lower IQ, less than 70. 25% are on the, the borderline range, which is 71 to 85. And then, you know, 44% have average to above average. So it may or may not be associated with um, an intellectual disability. And unfortunately, you know, and for a variety of reasons, I think minority groups tend to be diagnosed later and less often. Any questions about that? Is there any explanation? Discrepancy between. Um, so a couple, and we'll, we're not going to delve into the genetics of it, but there is a genetic abnormality called Fragile X. Um, Fragile X is uh, the one genetic abnormality that tends to have the highest number of people who are developed who develop autism spectrum disorder, and um, you know of course the because of the the pattern uh, genetically that this disease um, passes from family to family it only affects boys, so there's some thought about that happening is that you all know that men have one X and one Y chromosome, and if they have an abnormality in their X chromosome, they're going to express that disease process. And so there's some thought that that, that could account for it, but it's not, it's not quite been teased apart in research. It's like Officer Nielsen has a question. Sure. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, so I'm Officer Nielsen, APD. Um, for those that don't know, uh, my son actually is autistic. He's um, three years old. Um, been dealing with this for a while. Um, we've been through the CVB and a bunch of other stuff. One question I have for you is in relevance to your uh, one in 37, one in 151 uh, versus girls versus boys. I, I heard this study and I found it very interesting. A lot of boys are found early because of the fact that they like to start playing with stuff outside their normal. So for instance, my son would start playing with the Barbie dolls, which isn't normal for a, boy, a young boy to do. Where girls, that's normal. And the girls with autism would still play with the same as autism, even though she does, they don't realize that because she's playing with the same boys the boy with autism is doing. So do you think that plays a factor in why the girls and boys aren't equal or do you feel like it's not a factor at all or what are your thoughts on that? 
You know, um, that's a really good point. Thank you for sharing that. I had never heard that. I had never heard like choice of toys and gender specific toys being some indication for families to have uh, children tested. Um, I've always made this assumption, and this is not backed up in research, that um, you know, school-aged children, and particularly energetic or you know, um, um, ADHD-like children, um, maybe have more attention as boys. I'm just not. I'm not sure. I don't know what that that difference would be in terms of screening. Um, I am glad that you shared the the age of your child, though, because at age three, you know, we start to see mostly what parents see is. Um, uh, language deficits and that can they bring that up with their pediatrician that there's language delay and I think even our society there's the the persistence of the you know the misunderstanding that boys are more delayed than girls in terms of development now certainly that might be um, true in, in terms of adolescent development speech development should occur uh, normally between both males and females so I don't so I'm not sure I, I don't know if I have an answer to that question but I'll, I'll be curious to look up some of that if there's that if that's been researched at all all right thank you mm -hmm. yeah, thank you okay so why now why, why are we seeing these increasing numbers and they are in 2004 we had that number that um, was one in one the prevalence is one in 166 and here we are now in 2018 the study at least in 2018 one in 59 so you know what what is this related to does anybody have any guesses any thoughts about this uh, officer nelson apd again i i really honestly believe this this kind of goes with everything if you look at anything um our technology is better our ability to understand is better We've re we have more research involving it. I think that as we are able to better diagnose things, example, ADD is another thing that's gone up, ADHD, um, you know, PTSD, things like that. I think as our research has increased um, and that we've taken the understanding of, okay, this isn't just somebody who's different. This is an actual diagnosis and this is what it is. It's been able to help us. It's, that's why our stats have gone up. So I agree with you, Officer Nielsen. I think most people who work in this field agree with you as well that it's not that you know that the, the numbers are going up and autism is happening more. It's just that we're you know we're diagnosing it more. That this has been present, and I, I think some of the information and um, that we'll we'll cover later in the lecture will will show you historically people that we suspect likely were on the spectrum, and we just you know we weren't diagnosed. We were not diagnosing it as medical professionals. Um, I think, you know, thinking about the risk, the risk factors too, um, the things that not, they don't equal causation, but some of the risk factors that are associated with autism spectrum disorder are probably happening more in our society too, though, right? Like we as parents, we, we are becoming parents um, at later ages in our society. Um, the utilization of, you know, fertilization and other reproductive technologies may result in increased, you know, in increased multiples. So I think some of those things are probably accounting for a small amount, but most people would agree um, that it's we're, we're diagnosing this more. So we had a comment from the network um, uh, from our sergeant from Illinois. He said, my youngest son was diagnosed at age two. My middle was diagnosed at age four. We saw the signs earlier in my youngest son because we had already experienced it. Yeah, right, exactly. So there's that like second time around parenting um, expertise that you have and, and certainly recognizing the nuances between, you know, children are very different too, but that's a good point. And that's kind of what what's happening in the medical field, they're getting better at diagnosing mm -hmm. because like Officer Nielsen said, there's better research into what is and isn't autism. Right. 
neosporosome. Isn't there some research that it is even independent of better diagnostic going on? You know, I haven't read any of that. Um, I, I haven't, but uh, I think that this is a debated topic among autism researchers. Yeah. Lawrence, did you have anything? I lost it. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> It'll come back. Rob Guardian, CRU, what are some of the other cases that medical field thinks are, are causes besides better awareness and, and technology? Right, so some of it's a great question. So I think it's some of those other risk factors that we talked about, right? There's some maybe some environmental factors that we haven't accounted for yet. Um, we're just not sure. I remember my question, yeah. sorry. Lawrence Savage with APD. Um, so is there something close to living with autism that they could have been mistakenly been um, diagnosed with in the past that now we know is? Yes. You mean some other diagnosis? Right, like they, have, they have some other disorder, but it, it's, it's so close that we missed it. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit about some historical figures and, and kind of how we conceptualize autism spectrum disorder, and you can, you can maybe give me your thoughts on that at that time. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, um, the nuances to people who are on the spectrum and how they, um, how they might be different from somebody who is neurotypical. So we, you know, we alluded to this impaired social interactions and communications. We're talking about nonverbal um, or limited verbal skills. And this oftentimes for kids, at least, is the, the reason, the thing that, you know, alerts their family about, hey, this, this kid might be a little bit different, right? They might have delayed speech. Um, might not be communicating in um, ways that somebody their age might be. Um, there's a tendency for repeated words, phrases, or use of body language that's not spoken. Um, there's definitely an avoidance of eye contact, uh, an aversion to or an avoidance of physical touch. Um, some sensitivities to sensory input and the things that I usually hear from parents is like the tag on the back of a shirt was bothersome or um, a certain type of fabric would be bothersome to a child. Um, and then troubles relating to or avoidance of interacting with others that you know, there's not a whole lot of concern about being the kid who plays alone or, or the kid who's you know, perfectly comfortable interacting with themselves and nobody else. And then this difficulty interpreting body language. And I want you to remember this um, because this, I think, in terms of interaction with law enforcement professionals is really difficult. So any or all of these symptoms can be present, uh, but these are some examples of impaired social interactions and communication. We see some commonly observed behaviors, and again, this all occurs on a spectrum. It can happen with some kids, with adults, um, may not happen at all, um, but there tends to be, you know, tantrums or extreme, extreme distress for no apparent reason. Maybe something small has changed, a routine has changed, and that results in this huge blow up that would be um, really unexpected or you know, unexplained for somebody who's neurotypical. Um, there's this insistence on sameness for people, needing um, to be a repetitive nature to thing, or needing things to occur in the same way, and that goes along with 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 play, right? So sustained or unusual, repetitive play as well. Um, can be some inappropriate laughing or giggling, and certainly in response to maybe a situation that you wouldn't expect laughing or giggling, that can happen. Um, some inappropriate attachment to objects, whether that's you know, like a plaything or more oftentimes 
um, something that's not considered a plaything, like a toothbrush or a pencil or some some object that you would think this is this doesn't seem like it would be any fun, but um, there's an inappropriate attachment to it. And then unfortunately, kids uh, who are on the spectrum tend to have a fascination with water and lights and reflections. And the number one reason that kids on the spectrum die still is from accidental drownings. And it's thought to be related to this. Okay. And then there can be echolalia or an echoing of words or phrases and the repetitive need for that, along with um, some other forms of what we call self-stimulation, stimming behavior where either um, kids or adults can spin objects, they can spin themselves, hand clapping, rocking, so some repetitive motor movements too. Mm -hmm. When you say echo, does that mean echoing what the person said to you or just saying the same word? It can be both, yeah. So in terms of interacting with people on the spectrum, if you were to say something and you get an echo back, usually in our society that's considered like there's a mocking nature to it, but that might be normal for somebody who's on the spectrum that they repeat. You know, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? And there might be a, a need or a compulsion for that. So it's thought about a third of, of people on the spectrum are nonverbal. Um, and so I, I've met a lot of you know, medical professionals who think, oh, they're not on the spectrum because they talk. Well, it's not that simple, right? You go back to that spectrum -y aspect to things. Okay, so I, I kind of talked a little bit about this, but there seems to be a hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity, overstimulation or understimulation um, with certain things. So disliking certain articles or types of clothing like hoods or again the tag, a feeling of socks, um, disliking being touched, a lot of oversensitivity to, to sounds in particular or smells and tastes. Um, and then difficulties with sense of movement and how they move their body and how that might be interpreted by another person, along with um, fine motor or motor planning difficulties. <clears throat> yeah, so examples of this that I've interacted with, again, is that hypersensitivity to the tag in the back of the shirt might result in the person with the autism spectrum taking off their shirt. You can imagine you being called to a restaurant where that's not allowed, right? Um, yeah, so like in, in particular, wool, wool as a fabric seems to be really itchy for all of us, but you can imagine that if you're hypersensitive to that feel. Sorry. Oh, okay. Um, you know, and I think parents and other people take it for granted that we can hug our children, right? And a lot of kids on the spectrum, that's uncomfortable for them. They want to avoid that in general. It feels uncomfortable to them. And that can be interpreted to the person who's wanting to, to deliver touch or a hug. Um, it's, 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 it's interpreted in a way that's not meant to be. Um, and again, going back to some of these fine motor and motor planning activities, we see difficulty standing on one foot or maybe walking in a straight line. So if you guys are doing a field sobriety test, you can imagine how a person, an adult on the spectrum might seem impaired, right? Like those are two things that go along with alcohol intoxication, but this person might have difficulties with their motor planning. And then we tend to see some low motor tone as well. Officer Nissen has kind of an example of what you're talking about. He mm -hmm. said, my son gets on and off the bus. He says the word bus about 15 times before he gets on and off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he adds hi or bye in order to help himself get on and off the preschool bus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think it's parents kind of knowing parents, um, providers, friends, knowing those nuances to their child and um, allowing that to happen too, right? Like just allowing them to, to have that, that little work for them. You know, so 
one of the things about autism spectrum disorder, we talk a lot about the deficits. Um, and I think parents who are receiving this diagnosis for their kids for the first time feel completely overwhelmed. Oftentimes medical professionals do too, especially when we practice in a state that has um, maybe limited resources, um, certainly for those on the, uh, you know, certainly for those who are adults who are on the spectrum. We talk a lot about the fear that goes along with this diagnosis. So what does this mean for my family? What does this mean for my child? What does this mean that they're not typical? Right? So we talk a lot about that and how overwhelming that can be to a family, but really do like to concentrate on the strengths of autism spectrum disorder um, because it might just mean that your child or the adult that, you know, that you're working with has a lot of other skills. So we tend to see people on the spectrum, they have very strong visual skills. They have extreme memory of details, a great ability to focus on things. Their special interests can become a, a strength for them, right? Um, and again, not every every person on the spectrum has a low IQ. That doesn't mean it's an you know an intellectual disability. Oftentimes, we see people with above average intelligence. There's um, a tendency for people on the spectrum to really be rule followers and to be brutally honest sometimes <laughs> in a way that's you know <laughs> painful for a provider if they notice something about you, but. Um, and then their problem-solving ability. So these are all really big strengths, and I, I do want to highlight a couple of people who are living on the spectrum, and they have these amazing lives, amazing talents. So this is Stephen um, Wiltshire. He's an artist, um, and he has he has these strengths of I mean, his memory is amazing, and his visual skills are amazing. So he he does these landscapes of these cityscapes, where he's able to look at a city. And it doesn't even have to be in person, and he's able to reproduce it like you see up here. Um, he does these very lifelike, accurate descriptions, um, or sorry, depictions of cities and skylines, and sometimes he's only observed them once. So he has this, I mean, all over the, all over the world, he's, he's, he's seen cities all over the world, he's able to do the same thing. So I'd encourage you to go to his website. Um, and what I'd like you to, to notice is that here he is performing his art, and he's got his headphones on. Right? I don't know if those are noise canceling, but he's living his life and he's still needing to do some things to maybe decrease sensory input for him. Um, so a very cool guy. And we have an example from the network. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Stefan says, adding to this memory of details, my middle son has the counties of Texas memorized in alphabetical order just from watching a video. Yeah, Whoa. it's really, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's astounding to me. Um, some of the skills that you know people on the spectrum have. Um, so I don't know if, if there's any cattle farmers or cattle farmer people here, but this is Temple Grandin. She's probably one of the most famous persons who has autism spectrum disorder. Um, she's a professor at Colorado State University, and she's actually been a consultant to livestock, the livestock industry. She's revolutionized the way that livestock um, are processed, um, and she's an autism spokesperson as well. So she's a really cool lady, and she's developed many different um, uh, ways of or shoots uh, for animals to be processed. Um, you can imagine it's a really high stress time for an animal, um, and when you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of livestock, um, trying to you know corral them into a certain area is really stressful. And so she was able to do this with no education. She just imagined what it was like for um, a cow to be go going to its death and what she imagined she would want if she wanted comfort. Um, and so this progressive shoot system essentially, um, you know, uh, 
maintain smaller and smaller spaces for the animal. And so it's, you know, both safe in terms of the handlers and um, it's safer for the animals and it's thought to be more humane as well. Um, so she's a pretty cool person. She came and lectured, um, I think last year or the year before. She, she goes around the country. She's a really um, great spokesperson. So she's put together this uh, little video about autism spectrum and some of the strengths. And I, I think take a couple of minutes to watch this. And I might need some help. Yeah. Can I just do this? Okay. I feel like I'm not a non-millennial right now. You all hear that? Hear that? Isn't that work? Okay. I read about someone who tested a, a piece of equipment in their head for many days to see if it was working. Do you do that? I think that was Tesla, and it was spinning a dynamo dynamo for the uh, electric power plant and you could tell whether it was going to be off balance and not work. And Tesla definitely today would be diagnosed autistic. If you got rid of all of the genes that cause autism, you'd be rid of Carl Sagan, you'd be rid of Mozart. Einstein today would be labeled autistic. He had no speech until he was two years old. I mean, half of all the people that, that work these big tech companies have got at least a mild version of Asperger's. If you didn't have a little bit of those Asperger autistic genes, you wouldn't even have any computers. I just loved the flying things when I was a child. I loved model airplanes that flew. I loved kites. If it flew, I liked it. And then when I got into high school, it was horses. Horses, horses, and more horses. I was diagnosed with autism as a young child. I had all of the full-blown autism symptoms, no speech, screaming, you know, just everything. It was definitely fully autistic. Now, my brain is visually indexed. I'm basically totally visual. I mean, everything in my mind works like, you know, a search engine set for the image function. And you type in a keyword and I get a pictures. And it comes up in an associational sort of way. And I want you to give me some keywords and don't give me something common like house or car because everybody can visualize that. Alfalfa. Well, I saw a field of hay. Now I'm seeing uh, bales of hay um, over where Mark's horses are. And I go, oops, that's grass hay, that's not alfalfa. Now I'm down at the zoo and they used to feed alfalfa hay to the antelopes and Nancy used to complain it was way too rich. But okay, you're wondering how did I get from alfalfa to Phoenix Zoo? Okay, it's associational. There is a logical progression there. I've designed uh, handling facilities for all the major meat companies. Half of the cattle in this country, when they go to a meat plant, they're handled in a center track restrainer system that I designed. And my first big breakthrough was when I designed dip fat systems and they worked really, really well. Like Beef Magazine and all the cattle magazines were there and one of them called it a work of art. I mean, I was just so happy. People, you know, being autistic, they thought it was really weird, but my stuff worked. I started doing my livestock handling class. I also guest lectured on humane slaughter methods, cattle handling, meat quality things, livestock behavior for the veterinary college. And my students in my class actually have to draw drawings. One of the interesting things I have found is that there are some students that absolutely can't draw that have learning problems, and I can tell by looking at the drawings. Because, okay, instead of just drawing nice half circles that have got us all over the place, I just had a student this year in my class, her drawings were really horrible. 
We're asking her still, so what are you seeing? She says, well, I see just waves. And I asked her if she hated driving at night, hated fluorescent lights, yes. Print jiggle on the page, yes. I suggested she go out and try on some different colored sunglasses. And she went out and got some little pink sunglasses and her economics grade went from a B to an A because now she could see the charts. Cheap sunglasses, a simple intervention. Nobody knows how, why they work, but they do. And it's kids flunking out of school that don't need to. That's the thing that's so disgusting. And the only reason I know about this is because of the autism community. One of the big concerns I have right now is getting people on the spectrum into good careers, computer science and stuff like that. As an autistic person, I am what I do more than what I feel. And I get a lot of satisfaction in life. You know, okay, I designed something and it works. Or I have a student say, well, you know, your course was really helpful to me. Or somebody likes one of my books, they say, well, help them with their autistic child or help them to understand their dog. That makes me really happy that I'm doing something that does something constructive on the ground. So one of my very favorite patients in residency um, who's on the spectrum, he lived in Atlanta. He was this young man who volunteered at, a, um, at the aquarium. And in his, his free time, he studied the uh, Jackson, Florida transport system. And this city apparently needed an overhaul of their transport. And he designed it and he sold it to the city for a couple million dollars. And, um, and there he was. And, you know, he struggled with, um, a lot of the things we're about to talk about, and anybody who may have seen him at a clinic would see, oh, oh my gosh, maybe this guy isn't functioning very well, but he was a millionaire. After never visiting this city and selling it to this, this, you know, this, this government, I thought it was really very cool. So let's talk about the mental health concerns uh, that go along with somebody who's uh, on the spectrum. Um, we do know that there are health problems that extend across the lifespan from, from young children to senior citizens, okay? So nearly um, a third, uh, about 32% of two to five-year-olds with autism spectrum are overweight and 16% are obese. So in contrast um, to, you know, the neurotypical uh, population that's less than a quarter of two to five-year-olds in the general population are overweight and 10% are medically obese. So why do you think that might be? about some of the sensitivities that we talked about earlier. Yeah, so uh, some, sometimes, you know, kids who are on the spectrum, they only want to eat one type of thing, right? They might want to eat only crunchy things, and that turns out to be chips. Or, you know, I had a patient who only ate McDonald's, and he would throw fits, and it was really, really difficult for his family uh, to introduce any type of food. It's already difficult to get, <laughs> ask any parent in the room, it's difficult to get your child to not eat goldfish and Cheerios all day. Um, but when you you know have a child who's on the spectrum, that's even more difficult. So that there's thought to be some of that related to that. A couple of comments. One's uh, my sons are drawn to carbs. Me too. Uh, very little diets for both. My boys only eat about five things. Mm -hmm. uh, Nostra Nielsen says, or texture to mouth. My son loves bacon, bacon and more bacon. <laughs> Give me reason for more bacon and I cannot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, so exactly. So it's that, maybe that need for sameness, so that familiarity with foods, but then, um, you know, 
maybe some other sensitivities, um, you know, to a particular texture of food as well. So that's good. Yeah. Um, depression affects about a 7% of children and 26% of adults with autism. Yeah. And then anxiety um, disorders can affect about 11 to 40% of children and teens, uh, along with this over-representation of ADHD symptoms in about 30 to 60% of children with autism. More than half of children with autism have one or more chronic sleep issues. And about you know one third of people with autism have epilepsy or a seizure disorder. Um, there's some interesting studies that um, associate schizophrenia and autism spectrum, and a lot of researchers. Um, this is an area of interest because there tends to be this um, almost genetic overlay of, of of risk to schizophrenia and autism spectrum. Um, about four to thirty-five percent of adults with autism have symptoms that would be consistent with schizophrenia, so hallucinations, delusions, and and by contrast, it's it's you know the prevalence of schizophrenia in the neurotypical population is one percent, right? So there's this huge overrepresentation, and then for me, just from you know my clinical practice, I tend to see a lot of obsessional or compulsive behavior too. In, in patients with autism spectrum disorder. And so, you know, kind of anxiety is the broad term for that, but I, I see a lot of that as well. There are two FDA um, indicated medications for um, autism associated agitation and irritability, and that's risperidone and aripiprazole. I don't put a lot of, you know, into that aripiprazole when they went to the market, it kind of went for broad broad coverage of everything. So, um, but there are medications that we can utilize to treat comorbid medical or psychiatric issues for somebody who is on the spectrum. Good question. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Do you feel that the depression and stress come from the family? In other words, since the parents are stressed out and do not know how um, to heal their child and the child does not always know how to communicate, that causes the child to become depressed or anxious as they grow. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question, and I don't think I have the answer to it, but I know, at least with the adolescents and young adults that I saw in clinic, it was oftentimes this, you know, their depression, um, their exogenous reasons, their external reasons for feeling depressed. Um, we're not being able to meet other people's expectation, right? Um, and for that young man I told you about who sold that program to the Jackson, Florida um, government, his mother had neurotypical children and, and really wanted him to live independently. And they strive for that, and he had trouble with that. And I think when he perceived he was not meeting that, that goal of hers, he did feel depressed. Um, so I, I think it's interesting, and I'm, I'm not sure if we'd be able to tease apart those um, nuances. And certainly that exists for neurotypical people who have depression too, right? We've got exogenous and endogenous reasons for um, feeling the way that we do. Yeah, that's a great question, though. And, and I think a lot of people who treat patients on the spectrum, they want to take a full, you know, wraparound kind of um, service sort of um, um, treatment approach with families because if you – you know, it's, it's pretty devastating for a family, and they put a lot of expectations starting at pregnancy into what this child is going to be, and if, when you receive the diagnosis of autism spectrum, that changes for a lot of people, and so, you know, um, one, realizing there's therapies and support targeting maybe some of the negative things that come along with autism spectrum, and then highlighting the, 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 the real skills that these people have um, is important. Yeah, but we see high, we see you know, disproportionate higher amounts of um, discord in families and then divorce, certainly with families who, um, who are living with a child on the spectrum. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. This is Niels Rosen. Along the same lines, uh, people 
uh, some people with autism, they don't want to socialize, but it's part of the depression that they kind of want to have that connection and aren't able to get it. I don't, right. I don't know. Right. And I, th I think that's going to vary from person to person. So, you know, um, social interactions are oftentimes difficult for people on the spectrum and some people may not want them at all, right? Like the idea of being around people is just, they're, they're a little bit more introverted, but I've met plenty of patients who they know that they can't interpret, um, you know, whether it's nonverbal communication, you know, like not being able to interpret what somebody's facial expression looks like. I had a patient who really wanted to date and he just came across as really intense and creepy to women um, because he didn't understand, you know, body, you know, body distance from other women and, and how to not immediately ask for sex or some other like way that we, we don't, nobody ever teaches us that, but we learn that as a society, you know, somebody who's neurotypical doesn't, you know, necessarily even think about how they learned, how do I keep certain amount of distance before somebody feels uncomfortable? Um, so I think it varies from person to person, but yeah, there's a lot of, you'll, you'll meet a lot of people on the spectrum, at least in adolescence and early um, adulthood who get that interaction through the internet. Mm. And I think it's one benefit, right? That we've got um, people who can interact and maybe not have all the same social pressures of interacting in person, but can interact and, and get that, that um, support there. It's a good question. Is there one of these conditions that's more comorbid with, with like, is there, or dual diagnosis? Maybe I'm using the wrong words. Mm -hmm. They have, what's the biggest mental health concern that goes with? Yeah, great question. So I say, I'd say depression, anxiety, and specifically OCD, obsessive compulsive like symptoms, and then psychosis. Yeah, but, but just like a neurotypical person, they can be more, they can have predispositions or genetic risk factors for bipolar disorder, right, or personality disorders. Um, they, they have all of the same tendencies, right? Okay. So when we're thinking about um, what you might see as a first responding officer, what you might see or hear. So again, a person with ASD looks perfectly typical. There is no, oh, they look autistic, right? There isn't a look, unless you're talking about fragile X. And those are very specific faces, and I guarantee you most physicians can't identify it. So there is no look. They can look perfectly normal, okay? They may be... They may, be, they may not respond to a stop command. Uh, they may attempt to move or run away when approached. Again, there's that maybe not understanding body language or uh, an avoidance of particular um, you know, in interaction. Um, they may cover their ears. They may look away. They may not be able to look at you in the eye. That might look suspicious to, to a law enforcement professional. And then again, they may have these motor skill problems that can affect their gait and make them look impaired. Uh, and they, they can display these unusual or repetitive physical movements that might make you think, is this person on drugs? Like, what's going on with this person, right? Will they have a flat affect? I don't um, can they have it, it can It can. It's not the same as schizophrenia, right? Like, you don't see that, um, that blunted or um, negative symptoms. But, you know, you can tend to, to notice some changes to their speech where there's a monotone. Um, right, where there's this kind of like this halting or even same sort of uh, se sequence to their words without the intonation going up a little bit. I, you see that a lot, or maybe like if, at the end of each sentence, right, um, or the, if we're asking a question, our intonation changes a little bit, and you and I can understand that if we're having a conversation. And, and oftentimes, people on the spectrum don't have that or don't understand that change in intonation. 
I've been legislating pretty. We had a comment. Uh, my sons want to interact socially, but with their lack of communication, it makes it difficult. They really try, but when they don't succeed, they shut down. And then something I've noticed in my police career is if, if there's somebody that's uh, living with autism spectrum disorder and they've had training since very young in age, what tends to happen is they'll make almost too much eye contact because they're really trying to key in on my face and tell what their appropriate response should be. Um, so I've seen both a lack of eye contact and then too much if they've had really good training from a, from a mm -hmm. young age. Mm -hmm. Good points, thank you. Okay, so you know what are we? What are you usually going to be called for when you're interacting with people on the spectrum? Well, oftentimes it's missing persons. Right? Uh, kids tend to kids on the spectrum tend to elope. About forty nine percent of children do tend to elope, um, and then you can imagine about a third of those, the nonverbal um, kids, can't communicate their name or address or phone. And this fascination with light and water accounts for ninety one percent of deaths related to drowning. It's related to high. Um, there also could be calls for odd or unusual behavior on another person's property, splashing in water fountains, um, people being on swings or slides. Again, that need for maybe stem behavior, repetitive behavior. Um, making order of objects. You know, I had a couple of, of patients um, that I saw in residency who would go to a grocery store and they could not stand it if a display was out of order. And so they thought they were being helpful, but they rearranged the whole thing and it really upset the manager of the store and they called police. Um, there's the approaching of strangers or saying odd things and then of course missing persons, which we Have you all seen any other different um, calls for assistance for somebody who's on the spectrum? Officer Nilton, uh, one interesting call I had, and, and I find it kind of when I've talked to other coworkers, um, and I'm sorry if my internet's cutting out. I'm at the station; it's not the best. Uh, but uh, what I, one thing I've noticed is that uh, parents are calling because they don't know how to deal with their own kids, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, the resources. They don't know what resources to go to because I know when me and my wife were going through it. We didn't know which route to go. Do we go to the neurologist? Do we go to the, you know, UNM and see the the CD, what's called CDD here for those that aren't from here? But do we go that route? Do we go just start with the schools? Do we start where we didn't know where to go? And I think um, that's that's been the kind of call I've seen is where parents don't even know how to deal with their own children or deal with their own adult children uh, or adult, um, you know, their children that are adults uh, because they haven't got that diagnosis yet or they know that it's there but they just don't know how to right yeah that's a good point right so like um everyone knows 911 so um and i certainly think behaviors and persons who have not been diagnosed it, it can be really like it, people can be searching for an answer why are they behaving this way right they might not understand that there's a hyposensitivity or hypersensitivity that's the root of things and, and I think I'm oversimplifying in some ways uh, some of the complex behaviors that come along with autism spectrum I, I don't want to say that it it's all related to a tag on the back of your shirt it's not um, you know but, but certainly when when people don't understand the origin of um, of expressed emotion and that relates to really dangerous behavior that you all are called for those those, those, those cases. Detective Weeby, who actually works in our missing persons unit, who's logged on, says they have a lot of cases that involve autism. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have uh, 
from Sergeant Stefan, we had a call for service with a male in his 30s with moderate autism. He needed help, so the only way he knew how to get help quickly was to say he was armed with a gun and was looking to hurt people. All he needed was help, but didn't know how to ask for it. Um, and I've seen cases in my career where their self-soothing behaviors, their stemming, um, comes off very strange to the public, and they'll call police and have us in contact with them. Yeah, great points. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about an autism response method. Um, this can help guide you through maybe some of integrating all of the things characteristically about autism spectrum disorder and how you might respond as the first, you know, as the people interacting with them. Um, so we use um, this, it's the approach method. So approaching in a quiet or non-threatening manner and avoiding any quick motions or gestures that could be perceived as threatening. Um, understanding, so this is, all, this is um, the acronym here, understanding by avoiding physical contact. And then talk using moderated and calm voice with very simple, short, concrete language. You may have to repeat yourself and allow for a response time. And then when it comes to instructions, you want them to be really simple and direct. You have to avoid slang because that can cause confusion or even inappropriate responses, right? Um, so you want to provide very specific instruction and, and again, avoiding that slang. So do you think that's cool? That could be concretely interpreted by somebody on the spectrum. They won't know what that means. Um, what have you got up your sleeve? It might directly mean, what do you mean? I don't have anything under my sleeve. Are you pulling my leg or up against the wall? Those are probably not things you guys say very often, but just some examples. We <laughs> had a Lawrence Vager with AP. I had an officer tell a, that I was with one time to, to stand fast. And it just he could not stand fast. Didn't understand. Yeah. I had to think about it myself. Yeah. Really. It's a mil I mean, it's military. Right. It's used a lot. Right. And if you kind of think about how we communicate in day to day, I it's full of, I have a lot of them myself, but I have to avoid regularly saying, hang in there on the inpatient unit. You can imagine how upsetting that is to a suicidal patient who might be having thoughts of hanging themselves, but that's my own, I, I tend, to, I don't know why, I just tend to say, hang in there, and it's like, you know, it's really inappropriate. Um, I catch myself almost every day, you know, so I, I want to say something nice to a patient as I'm leaving, and certainly that's not a nice thing. So to give you an example of metaphors and sarcasm, I picked up a couple of um, um, Australian terms. And so who, who can do an who can do an Aussie slang for me? Uh -huh. Read these out loud. Out loud. Dr. Rosenbaum can't even help. Did you put the togs? The togs. I don't. I can't do. It. I always like resort to British. Togs. <laughs> <laughs> No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, what do you guys think this? What do you? Th what does this mean? Did you put the togs in the boot? Did you put your shoes on? Mm -mm. That's nice. <laughs> it's in the boot. This means. Did you put your bathing suit in the trunk? Of right. This is. I mean, this is to really reiterate what this might feel like to somebody on the spectrum. For some, some nuance saying that we say or. Neurotypical people might understand, but um, all right, here's another one. Gabby's or snags for tea. <laughs> What's that mean? No idea, right? So this is shrimp or sausage for dinner. <laughs> for tea? <Yeah. laughs> Whose turn is it to shout for ice cream? Paying for beer. 
That's close. It's whose turn? Whose turn is it to pay for the ice cream? Right? <laughs> so you can just imagine, like for a per, you know a person, they don't understand metaphors, sarcasm. Okay. So going back to that autism response method, the S is seek. So looking for all indicators to evaluate the situation as it's unfolding, and being able to adjust your actions accordingly. And then, of course, visually evaluating for injuries for people who are either nonverbal or might not be able to ask for help. And then maintain, so maintaining safe distance until inappropriate behaviors lessen and remaining alert uh, that impulsive behaviors or outbursts may occur. That's the autism response. So again, you know, maybe some other things to keep in mind with somebody who has, you're interacting with somebody who you suspect is on the autism spectrum is again, just maintain that relaxed, calm environment, avoid physical contact, limit your verbal interaction, provide those clear and simple instructions. And verbalize anytime you're about to touch the person. You might hate that. Um, you also, please turn off your lights and sirens if you suspect somebody's on the spectrum, because as loud as that sounds to everybody, it's louder for them. And then again, waiting for time or util utilizing adaptive technology for communication. A lot of people who are on the spectrum um, uh, utilize a, you know, a, a tablet form for communication. There's a lot of direct therapies around this, which is really cool. So a nonverbal person might have that. And if you're able to interact with them on that, that would be really great. We have a question from the network it says, I really like the autism uh, response method. Does, I guess, anyone on the network have a one-page document or pocket card that you could forward to me to share with our law enforcement? I don't, but we can make one. Let's yeah, make one. That'd be cool. Yeah, let's do that. It's a really good thought. Speaking of pocket cards, though, um, this is a really nice one uh, for patients, and I've handed this out to patients before, too. Um, this is basically an alert card, kind of like similar to an alert, you know, um, bracelet or, or necklace where, it, you know, if somebody who's nonverbal is interacting with a, a law enforcement person or somebody else that they're not typically, you know, they're not used to, to speaking with, they can give them this card. Um, and I think, you know, first and foremost is that their behavior might be really odd to you, and if it's, it's not, it's oftentimes not a refusal to cooperate. So there's a backside of this. Let's see if I have it on there. No, I don't. But there's a backside of them. We can, and this is available online. So we can forward this as well. <clears throat> Alabama has this. Yeah. What, what questions? Do you